0: Thank you.
1: Hello, and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox.
0: And I'm Lori Socks.
1: And today we're joined by Dr. Eric Rubenstein.
0: We met Eric at the T21 conference in Long Beach, and I was immediately taken in by his candid conversation of equality. And once we were able to actually step aside and have a conversation I am a lifelong fan. Eric does research. He's inclusive. He is making the changes that are changing the lives of the people in our community.
1: Eric is an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Boston University School of Public Health and created the Rubenstein Lab, which is focused on improving the lives of individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities.
0: His lab is committed to fostering a safe and inclusive environment, which is one of the things that shines through in Eric's work and in our conversation.
1: So please welcome Dr. Eric Rubenstein.
0: Well, good afternoon, Eric. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having
0: me. So we met you at the convention, the T...
1: 21 Research Convention. In Long Beach,
2: Trisomy Twenty One Research Society Congress, I believe, is the The full full name. Full name. That was
0: our first time attending that conference, and it was really just great to meet you. There were so many. We loved the fact that we were there, and it was a conference of research for Down syndrome, because that gives so much hope. Just to think that people are actually looking into ways to understand and improve the lives of people with Down syndrome. Yeah, all these
1: minds together, Yeah, researchers, scientists. As a parent,
0: it's really cool. As far as being on this journey, it wasn't really something that at least we were aware of when Liam was first born almost 13 years ago. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. I am an assistant professor in epidemiology at the Boston University School of Public Health. And prior to 2020, when I would say I was an epidemiologist, people would ask me if their rash was like poison ivy or whatever, you know, people would always confuse epidemiology with dermatology because of epidermis. Um, But now everyone's like, oh, what do you think about COVID? And I have to be like, well, you know, I I actually kind of do more Down syndrome work than COVID. And I could sort of tell you what I think about COVID, but I'm no more, uh, educated than anyone else that reads the news on COVID. Um, So I my research focuses on improving health and well-being for adults with intellectual development disabilities. um, With a current really big arm of my research being looking at health in adults with Down syndrome. Um, I got into this field when I was a kid, not not the research field, but I you know I I started coaching Special Olympics when I was in elementary school and I'm still coaching now. So I, I don't need to age myself, but it's been a really long time. And it's really just sort of been part of my life to, to the coaching to the, the profession that I, I sort of I've always found myself a part of the community of people with intellectual disability. And um, I'm really honored and, and privileged to be part of this, this accepting and loving and awesome community and which your podcast is a part of. And, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak with you today.
1: Well, you're such an advocate and, and I wonder as a teenager, what motivated you to do Special Olympics?
2: The the original impetus was from my parents. So, um, you know, the the story goes that I, I'm from Central New Jersey, so I was a big Yankee fan and I love baseball. Um, but by the time I was in fifth grade, it was pretty clear that there, I had no shot of like ever hitting the baseball. I was just so bad, and my parents couldn't stand watching me play, not because they like cared a lot about how. Ugly, my baseball game was. But I would get so upset about how bad I was, and I would I would really not take it well when I was like over four with four strikeouts. So they very uh, gently nudged me across to the next field where there was Special Olympics practice. It was actually um, it wasn't technically Special Olympics, but the same sort of idea. And that just sort of started to be something I loved doing. Uh, you know, it was nice to get on and play baseball and feel like I was helping, and I wasn't sort of embarrassing myself at the plate, which was which was really nice um and it just sort of led to a job in high school which is a good way to keep a teenager motivated is is by being paid i worked at a summer camp and a recreation program and then sort of especially at the time we were sort of seeing a lot of press and interest in autism from kind of the research world so there was a really big scientific question surrounding why autism prevalence is rising and that sort of got me into the area of public health and epidemiology was through autism. Um, and as my career progressed, I, I sort of have become more interested in Kind of health and outcomes and not necessarily cause and in epidemiology a lot of the work is focused on what causes the conditions um so in my training we weren't really talking about health outcomes for people with conditions but like what causes the conditions so that's why kind of in my training autism was a natural place to go because people still wanted to figure out what caused autism i was actually told in my my epidemiology class that one of the the conditions you can not study the cause of is down syndrome because we know of the trisomy 21, and there's a lot of elective terminations, which as an epidemiologist is kind of wonky, but it kind of biases our research question. And you can't really figure out what causes Down syndrome from sort of an environmental perspective, because we don't know who would have had Down syndrome if they were a live birth. So it sort of took me into my my professorship to, to really dive headfirst into Down syndrome research. And it has been a treat and I've really sort of never done anything else in my my career outside of sort of this intellectual disability space. And I really I, I, I may have been a great engineer or an astronaut or really one of so many things. But um, I'm glad I've stayed on the straight and narrow because it's been it's been very rewarding thus far.
0: Can you just tell me what epidemiology is?
2: Yeah, so epidemiology in sort of a broad definition is the study of the causes and distribution of disease and health in a population. So when we think about COVID, we're thinking about the cause of COVID-19, which we know is sort of aerosol transmission and sort of distribution, who gets it and why. It also, as in in more recent years, have taken a really strong social component and sort of health equity lens of sort of about structural Inequities causing poor health outcomes. So it's not just does air pollution cause lung cancer? It's also what are our social systems and inequities and how do they affect our health outcomes? Um, so, from my perspective, I'm really interested in that second part about how sort of social structures and inherent ableism and compounding disparities hurt the health of people with Down syndrome. And it's not just the trisomy of the 21st chromosome. There's so much else in our society that impacts health. So sort of thinking about the health of populations rather than just an individual.
0: We both have Dr. Scott Co um, as a common friend, but one of the things he always says is that the the chromosome has not changed over the years. It's just like society and you know parent support and advocation and research inclusion. and things and inclusion. Um, can I ask you when you were talking about that you started off and you got that nudge to go over and to help at the other field? Do you remember as a kid what it was that like sparked your as you were there and you said that you weren't so focused on not doing well at bat? Did working with the other children, did that kind of put things into perspective or how did it put, as I know it's a long, long time ago, but.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I was ever kind of the person that was like, this is inspiring. Like I, it was it was not like, oh, it's such an honor to see my friend get a hit and who would have ever thought that he could get a hit. It, it, it was sort of like, you know, most of the time we spent running around in the outfield, not, not really even thinking about baseball. And, and it was sort of, the ability to have more peers, more friends, and really part of it that was nice was like, I think even at a young age, I appreciated that the parents appreciated it, that like, I was not one to, to be like, oh, it's so amazing that he's playing baseball. But a lot of parents were so thrilled that their kid was out there playing baseball. And and I appreciated that I was able to, to help these parents get that experience. I, I also, think that I worked a lot with a lot of kids that just wanted to run. So it was good exercise. Like they didn't want to play baseball. They just want to run the outfield. So like, I was like, all right, I'll get a good workout too. I like sort of the challenge of trying to get, you know, these kids that that didn't want to play baseball. I mean, they didn't. And to, to try to like it, it, it was not like I was, um, you know, working with people that were like, always into baseball sometimes they were just dropped off like most kids in little league and just told "Oh, go play baseball this is what you do and they were like no i want to you know play my nintendo and the the game is to try to get them into baseball so yeah it's kind of hard to say exactly what it was but but i think i liked both the there was more activity there was there was action there was running and i could sort of see that this meant a lot to to the parents
0: We had a couple of really great conversations when when we were at the convention, but one of the things I love that you said is that it wasn't that it was inspiring. And we kind of talked about when Down syndrome just becomes this avenue of inspiration, how that just kind of, it really diminishes the equality there. I feel like I can understand what you witnessed as uh, the parents feeling, because I know we went to an event and there was a lot of sports there and it wasn't about down syndrome. It was just about everybody being equal. And when you can witness that your child is just included in something when they're not always included, that is something that, that always strikes me. uh, It hits me pretty hard. It gets my little, it gets my uh, heartstrings because, um, What it's about is seeing that your child just gets to be a kid like everyone else and their diagnosis isn't defining them in that moment. They're a kid who wants to play sports.
2: Right, right. And like, there should be expectations. Like if you're working hard and practicing and you should improve and there should be goals. And like, if you hate baseball and don't want anything to do with it, you shouldn't be allowed to just hit a home run because you're the kid on the team with Down syndrome. All of us need to contribute and work to get the outcomes we want. Just because you're, you know, the kid that's different doesn't mean you're a token and needs to be sort of make others feel good. You're part of the team, you need to contribute, and there shouldn't be just reward because you're different. You know, it really is about inclusion and not about tokenism. And sometimes on the news, you see that a little bit too much. I mean, it's hard to judge like what it really looks like in the world everywhere because the stories on the news tend to be the ones that, like, it's like, oh, your moment of inspiration or that kind of thing, where hopefully in a lot of places, it's just, you know, this is normal. You know, this, that's the kid on the team with Down syndrome, kid on the team with autism. You know, they, they get a hit every once in a while, but like everyone else, they strike out sometimes. Because, you know, if if your kid with Down syndrome is on the baseball team and is hitting four for four with four home runs, he's going to think he should be on the Red Sox. And, and maybe he should because he's hitting a home run every time he steps up to the plate. Um it's really rewarding as a coach to to see success after the natural failures. And and I think that that's probably the same for parents or teachers or educators, that um, if we set people up to succeed every time, then what does success mean?
1: It may be a little controversial, and I don't want to make too much of a tangent, but we together, Lori and I, have, have discussed that we're kind of torn with when we see a news video where the kid uh, gets, you know, the senior that was the team water boy type of thing, and he's given the ball and he gets a touchdown and the other kids are kind of pretending to dive and and tackle him and he gets to score the touchdown. The pull is, man, everybody seems real happy, right? But the other side is exactly what you're saying. We we need to see some failures to see growth and have true goals. And I understand what everyone's trying to do, but I do feel it torn, but I don't want to digress too much. But yes, no.
0: But I also feel what strikes us because we're parents and in the class, we're fighting all the time to get our child in the classroom. We're fighting for resource and supports and all of that. And I think what frustrates us is that I feel like it's for the people watching to make them feel good. But for me, I always feel like why don't you educate my son and actually get set him up for success and not just do the easy thing that makes. You look good and everybody feel good. Yeah, the football game's like a billboard for everyone, But we had this happen with a track meet at school. And I just, we're controversial in the fact that I, you know, they tried to give Liam a a gold medal. And the poor little kid who won was like, ma'am, I won. And I was like, I know you did, honey. Yeah, they
1: tried to give him the first place medal because he finished last.
0: last, But, you know. Right. But he just finished. And it's just. He did a great job. So, yes, so we are we are completely on board with that. And even though it's controversial, like for me, I always think of let's get real inclusion. And maybe if you included him in the PE class every day and had from, expe- the, beginning. from the beginning and had expectations of him, then he would be running that faster pace. You know, like if you if he was in the classroom, if he was seen as equal with equal expectations, because my daughter never got a... Gold medal. She never came in first place.
1: Or Liam works real hard, and maybe he comes in last or beats one kid. And but that's he, that's where he went. That's but where it's he about finished, like setting up you know? the expectations. We can cheer everyone.
2: Yeah, and and I think that uh, like especially like with these stories of football teams and basketball team, like oftentimes the the individual deserves recognition because they're usually part of the team and working hard, and like oftentimes they're managers or whatever. But like, you know, maybe it's playing a mean like a real play. Like Maybe they're just like out at a wide receiver and they don't get thrown the ball, but it's it's real. Like that, that you know, is real inclusion. And I think that's what you probably would do with a kid without Down syndrome who wasn't very good at football either, but was like a part of the team that they wanted to recognize.
1: Yeah, we've all seen Rudy.
0: We, we've all Rudy. seen Rudy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> this
0: goes into because our two conversations that I really enjoyed um, that we touched on were ableism. And also Special Olympics. And those are two things that I really want to follow up with you. And maybe this is a good time to go into about Special Olympics, because honestly, we have friends who have participated. Stephen and I have never participated. And I think it was because the way we viewed and, and also the way it was, in, I think it depends on who introduces you to it. And just the introduction, it was it, to us it was along that same lines of what we're talking about. Yeah. But when when you've worked with Special Olympics for a long time and the conversation that I had with you was so different.
2: Yeah, yeah. So for children, it, it's slightly different, right? Because there are still a lot of ap- avenues to do sports. You know, there's little leagues, there's school sports, there's, you know, a lot of programs like that. So, so it, it could be different for kids. But for adults, it, it really is, you know, a social club it's an opportunity to play sports that like i know so many 55 year olds with down syndrome that play basketball i don't know very many 55 year old adults without down syndrome that play basketball so so first of all it's like an opportunity to exercise which obviously is great um, but i i think we can also dismiss disability as an identity that this group of people have shared experiences that they can commiserate with and talk to and and this isn't in contrast to inclusion, but it's nice to have people that experience what you've experienced, and especially given you know most of our social social structures, it's like the people that we work with, and the people that we went to school with, and the people that we live with, and and that's kind of what it is for most of the Special Olympic athletes. I see like you know these are just their friends, and what they do um, is play sports. You know, I, it was funny talking about Liam's track meet, but. I've coached track for years and years and years and athletes will be disqualified after they win the gold medal. If they step over the line, it, it is almost sometimes like shocking how sport serious it can be about like, Nope, you, you did not follow the rules. You fouled the player. You don't, you like, you don't get a free layup. Like, you know, you step, you, you had a false start, you're disqualified. And it's like, wow, like we're serious here. Like this is really serious and it's great for, for really some higher level athletes that are really competitive and and really kind of like elite athletes. And it also works really well for adults that, or or anyone that's really not an elite athlete and just likes having fun. Um, And it's nice to be part of a program that has that flexibility, where really it's whatever you kind of want, you can get out of it, but at most it's a social program. And then they've really invested a lot in health too. That's sort of where the organization is moving is towards like sort of every event, having a booth that's doing physicals and teaching about healthy eating and, you know, wearing sunscreen and all of those things that like, when you have such a population there, it's like so vital because where else do you have that opportunity to give tailored information? Um, probably when you talk to Dr. Skatko, Not everybody has a clinician that has a patient with Down syndrome, or this is the first patient they've ever seen with Down syndrome, whereas if you're getting some health education material from Special Olympics, Special Olympics is probably the largest healthcare provider of people with Down syndrome in the world there's no organization that serves more people with Down syndrome, I would be sure. Um, So it really is like, that's my public health, that, you know, epidemiology is part of public health. That's my public health hat of being like, it's just such an opportunity for health. Um, But it really is so much more. And I haven't done so much recently working with, with younger athletes, so sort of school age. But when I was in Baltimore, there was this great team, it was a, they called it a unified team. So it's athletes with uh intellectual disability down syndrome autism and without about the same age playing teams that are also athletes with and without and a lot of times it was siblings of individuals with down syndrome on the same team playing together and you know it it was about the right age where like second graders you know maybe one kid will be like great at soccer but for the most part it really is hard to be good or bad and at this age it, it was just so nice to see this diverse big group of kids out there playing and it was a real game and everyone was playing a real game. You know, obviously some kids with Down syndrome were not, you know, all that attentive. And so were some kids without Down syndrome. And to see sort of the parents experience this too, again, sort of seeing it from that lens of not only is my son being included, they are playing at a level that's appropriate they are really participating it's real and then oftentimes it's sort of families getting to watch their children play together which is really cool and you know sort of the the opportunity to kind of take that special relationship and and add it to a team um it was it was really nice and and i think that there's a lot of opportunity for that and i know that special olympics is is partnering with schools to to build programs like that and the earlier you start it i think the less the tokenism exists because you don't really notice that difference when you're a kid. It's only when you kind of get older and society tells you there's a difference that you notice it.
0: Those inclusive groups that you're talking about, is that part of the special Olympics? Is that a part of them?
2: Yeah, there are some teams just like in local programs that are just unified teams. So that's in kids and adults, volunteers come and play with athletes and that's the team. They're also um, unified schools, So it's sort of a more of a program that is run through schools. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like because I've not been in an elementary school since I was in elementary school. Um, But that is a big, big push for them to have these unified schools and do more unified sports.
0: Well, that's the place that we start is at the foundation. And, you know, I remember when Liam was in kindergarten It was more the parents asking us. I I mean, we had a lot of parents ask us, "What do we tell our kids about Down syndrome?" But the kids really they weren't seeing Down syndrome. And then in first grade, it was kind of the same. And I think it was maybe in second grade when other kids started to know. And then and their opinions were really formed by the The adults adults around. Yeah, the adults. uh, I remember he had a first grade teacher that would stop the class and say, "Okay, everybody, wait. I have to help Liam socks here." She she actually boasted about that in an IEP once. She was like, "No, when he needs attention, I stop the class and I tell them I need to help Liam." And I was like, "Do you stop the class and tell them you have to help Jeffrey?" So that's when kids really start to create their their opinions or how to feel about different all differences really and to have to have those inclusive groups to where it's just everybody's included would I think is a game changer. I think it's really a game changer.
2: Yeah, and, and I, I'm going to sort of shift gears a tiny bit, but I'm bringing that into my professional career, and I've really sort of been making a point of it to, to sort of recognize that I'm someone without Down syndrome doing research on Down syndrome, and I will never really know what Down syndrome is because I, I don't have Down syndrome. so we have put together a team, what we call it, a co-research team. So we have five adults with Down syndrome that are going to do the research. Uh, You know, I'm I'm not putting them to work. They've agreed and they're going to be paid for their time. But we're our first session is tomorrow and we're going to come up with questions. We're going to, you know, they're going to lead and and we're going to follow. And people with Down syndrome, as I'm sure you know, have a lot of opinions, um, especially about themselves and their health. And it's not just about, you know, doing research on people with Down syndrome or doing research with people with Down syndrome, it's, it's letting them do the research. They're they're the experts. We're, you know, I've studied it for years, but I'll never know more than, than you will, or your son, son will. So why not tap into that realm? And, and the inclusion is that all of my students who are graduate students are working with this team too. So our team is five people with Down syndrome, five people without Down syndrome, and we're going to work together and answer questions that are important to them. And it is sort of that sense of, there should be inclusion everywhere when we're surrounding sort of these topics and you know as a researcher this doesn't just go for down syndrome really kind of any condition um we sort of sit apart and and sort of our eggheads you know counting our numbers and tabulating our data where the lived experience of the people is is really what's important and um i'm i'm just i don't want to say that because i'm really excited and our, our first meeting is tomorrow so i'm i'm excited to to see My my the co-researchers really sort of shine and and teach us not not teach us to 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 prove and show and do the science because they can do it they should do it and they will do it.
1: How empowering! Thank you. I love it.
0: (laughs) Thank you for that. Really, I I, I'm interested to follow your research and to to share like some of the things that you learn. That's just the lens I feel like that you live and and look through from everything that we've talked about is that that seems to inclusion seems to be a part of like your fiber, which is really beautiful and equity.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I want to, I, I think that my perspective is not unique in, in the research world. I think that it's sort of is unique because I'm sort of on the precipice of more biological basic science and social science, where if you talk to like occupational therapist researchers or special education research, they'll be like, yeah, of course, this is what it's about. Um, whereas sometimes in our more kind of biological sciences, it, it is a little more far afield of, you know, researchers never having met anyone with Down syndrome. Um, so I, I'm trying to bridge that gap, but there are plenty of people that are trailblazers in this field um, of sort of inclusion research and equity for, for people with intellectual disability. Um, they just aren't always in sort of the, the more biological sciences.
0: I will believe that because you say it, and it and it's very hopeful. In our experience, that maybe has been the challenge because people are coming from the outside with perceived biases of what Down syndrome is, and it's not always what matches up with our experience. So that gives me great hope that things are changing as far as for people who, who come behind because I think that that would... Definitely improve different supports and services and expectations. I mean, a lot of the things that we've talked about is really seeing the life of someone with Down syndrome as being equal. And um, that's, that's another thing that you spoke about at the conference one of the things that you came up to the mic and you were talking, about, and I believe you were talking about sex, you were saying that like, we you said a little bit about ableism and seeing someone with Down syndrome as being a 100% full human being. And we just had a conversation with Paul Doherty and his wife, and they talked about, you know, when their daughter was dating and before she got married and talking about sex and approaching that. And I don't think that that's a subject that even when Liam had sex education at school in the fifth grade that every kid gets, we were offered, do you want to opt out? And I was like, like why would we for, opt out? Yeah, yeah. He's going through puberty. His body's changing. He should have the same conversation with his peers so he's not embarrassed, so he understands he's everybody's informed. going through it, yeah. and he's informed.
2: Yeah, so so that's another arm of my research is um, pregnancy in people with intellectual disability. Um, so we just finished up a grant and put in a new one. Um, but my work thus far has looked at pregnant People with intellectual disability um, in uh, a one state's Medicaid system. So it was about 1,000 pregnancies over, actually about 1,700 pregnancies over 10 years. Not too many to, to people with Down syndrome. That's, you know, again, part of sort of the societal expectations and stigmas and whatnot, um, why it was sort of less. But the takeaway is we saw the pregnant person had an increased risk of preterm birth gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension, hospitalization, compared to pregnant people without intellectual disability. So across the board, moms had worse outcomes. And then across the board, the baby had a worse outcome, small for gestational age, preterm birth, NICU admission, Uh, infant mortality was, was five times higher for parents with intellectual disability compared to parents without intellectual disability. So we see the effect of that downstream when we're looking at pregnancy, which everyone has the right and the ability to be a parent. There, there's no reason why someone with an intellectual disability can't be a parent. There's nothing biological about these disabilities that would lead to higher risk of these pregnancy outcomes. It is this structural belief that people with these disabilities can't have kids. Um, you know, the, the Supreme Court ruled that the state could forcibly sterilize people with intellectual disability. And while that's like no longer the practice, it hasn't been like officially overturned. It's like still on the books in the U.S. Um, the U.S. government, so it really is not something that is perceived as possible. So when it happens, of course, you know maybe your first instinct is not to get this person prenatal care or to tell them about their options. You know, maybe pregnancies are recognized later and care is later and doctors are dismissive. So um, when it comes to pregnancy, which I'm more familiar with because that's my research and we see that there's this huge disparity. And I think that, uh, you know, this is a hypothesis that that sort of leads from sex education in fifth grade and and sort of believing what is possible, um, which I think sort of makes what ends up happening, you know, not go as well, because it's a surprise, you're caught off guard. Whereas, you know, if we just sort of recognize everybody's reproductive rights, then these would not be an issue.
0: So you're saying that the research that because you know, all the facts that you gave about like the higher risk of mortality and harm to the baby and to the mother, if we just approached everybody and gave them the same tools and information and support and prenatal care and instead of being dismissive instead of thinking it can't happen or belittling the situation the the outcomes would be different
2: yeah yeah so I I think that like a good example that's from a different disability but I, I was part of a panel that was on disability and pregnancy and someone told a story about how, they were they were in a wheelchair, a wheelchair user, and they didn't have a chair in the OBGYN that could go up and down. So they were like unsure of how to get this person into the examination table. They just they just didn't know what to do. And you know, then they, you know, they had to lift her and she got hurt and all of those things happened. You know, so the solution there is, you know, a universal design or inclusive design where everything works for everyone. What would that mean for someone with intellectual disability might be more sort of material written at a more accessible level. Maybe a doctor spends more time and explains things, you know, a little more slowly. I know that's sort of a, a crunch for doctors, you know, they have to see patients and keep moving. You know, there's sort of dismissiveness that's anecdotal. The doctor is just sort of assuming that the person, you know, can't handle parenthood and sort of leads people down certain certain paths, you know, and, and there's sort of like access to supports that one might need to be a successful parent that are hard for the government to provide, whether it's a social worker or a personal care assistant for you while you have the baby. Those things that are just not easy to get for anyone, let alone someone with a with an intellectual disability. So So I sort of think that it kind of is the sort of thing where I just mentioned this at the conference, but sort of the the high tides, lift all boats approach to, to equity, where if we just make everything accessible for everyone, then people with Down syndrome do better. People of marginalized and minoritized races do better. People with sensory disabilities do better. And, you know, I think something like a universally accessible material and language around things like pregnancy and sexual and reproductive rights helps everybody. We don't need to use jargon. We don't need to use big words and that will help everyone so a lot of times I think the solutions um I see from sort of as a researcher is like oh we should make a down syndrome specific pregnancy or, or, or a sexual education material or something which is like that's a good idea but why can't we make something that also make one thing that also includes autistic people and people that might be uh English language learners and sort of just like you know we, we should try to make the one thing that works for everybody and that, that's not always the case but but our goal I think should be to to be allies with one another and, and work to make things that work for everyone rather than a different product for every different group.
1: Well this is the beauty and importance of research in general and the research you do where it can be assumed that the danger to the mother and the child is just because of the disability but then we can find out that the true danger is through the framework of our society and the mechanism of, of health care. And so then we can improve.
0: I think it's about having the conversation too because as you're talking, I mean, one of the things that right out the gate that they tell us is that your child isn't going to be able to have children. And first of all, if you said that about someone who could have children, you're really setting them up for failure because now the parent is going into it you know, and if their mind is open and they're supporting their child and having like a a relationship thinking that their child can't get pregnant, and then, oh, now your child is pregnant. you're not even supporting that person's support system like you're you're taking the the cards off the table and and I don't see how anybody could win in that situation
2: right, right, and you know to be clear you. Parenthood isn't for everyone, even for people without disabilities. There there needs to be no expectation that you will have children. I mean, to even say that when when a child is born is like that's so far away. Like if they don't if they want to have kids, if they don't want to have kids, what can we say when they're just born? It doesn't really it's not really that important, but it's about the opportunity to do so if one chooses. So I think that parents and individuals with Down syndrome know their capabilities, know know their strengths and and weaknesses, and can make that decision. But it shouldn't be made for them just because they have a certain condition or diagnosis.
1: Well, you're a new father.
2: I'm wearing my headphones so you can't hear the baby screaming at the moment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I, I think of this beautiful new human in the world. And when you're a parent of a child with a disability, a lot of times at that time with this beautiful infant you're told all these things, not going to drive, not going to go to college, not going to marry, all these no's, right? And it's such a disservice psychologically to the parents and to the child. And um, you'd never contemplate doing that with what you conceive as a typical child. And you, it would be abusive to the entire family if you did that. And I think that's where we come from, where we feel that this abuse is changing and it needs to stop, but it kind of comes from research it comes from the community itself and um
0: I love how matter-of-factly you just say it. Yeah. Because you do not have down syndrome and you don't have someone in your life, your your immediate circle that has down syndrome, but it just makes sense to you and you say it. And that's our hope is that other people will start to see that it's really foolish to say these things. And it is unfair to parents because I can think of my experience, we were just talking to our daughter about our experience with her when she was a baby and this coddling spa-like environment that she had. (laughs) And then with Liam, it was, you know, as a parent, when you're given all this negative information, it's this constant fight. It, if it was just presented as here's your child and these are some supports that will help him because this is the differences and maybe he has low tone and the milestones will come at this pace. But this is what you can do to support him. If it was presented in a different way, I think that it becomes more common sense that there's inequality there.
2: At this stage, the only thing my daughter is told that she can't do is eat garbage. <laughs> And she's at that age where all she wants to do <laughs> is pick things off the floor and put them in her mouth. So, I, I mean, I really empathize. You know, I can't imagine having a doctor tell me what what my my daughter could or could not do. And and I think that sort of sitting here as a as a researcher, part of it is the outcomes of interest that create you know opportunities and a good career for scientists are things like preventing Alzheimer's disease, which is really important, or you know finding. You know, a gene that might prevent leukemia, which again, super important. But the social outcomes, the well-being outcomes, they're harder to measure. they're much harder to create a a drug that solves the problem. So if you want to say like, okay, what do we know about quality of life for adults with Down syndrome? It's so much less than what we know about, The biology of trisomy twenty one, or the chromosomes and the the biology and the the incentives, you know, for a scientist that chase grants in the past, it's been to to do this biological, find the pill, find the medication, Um, which again, I'm not saying isn't important. The the co occurring conditions that that works to help are, are crucial, but it leaves us in a spot where we just don't know. Like like, I don't think that. A clinician has good evidence to say what your adult child with Down syndrome can or cannot do. And if they do say something, it's based on probably something that's at least 30 or 40 years old. And at the very least, they're talking about a generation that has not existed yet. You know, if they're talking about current adults, that's two or three generations before your child. So, so the doctor could say that, you know, my daughter will never fly a jetpack it's like well how will you know like there might be jetpacks everywhere in in 30 years so it's so hard to predict the future that, that the issues are we don't have good evidence for what happens and then who knows what advances we can make so hopefully that that trend stops and and we're more you know honest and positive but also realistic about maybe the short term you know maybe maybe sort of more but sort of pure pure coaching parent to parent coaching but yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to have to experience, and I'm sorry that that you had to to go through that.
0: I love your optimism. I, I'm very optimistic, and I think your optimism it You're supports, optimistic,
1: but people will almost pat you on the head and yeah, be like, people "Oh, pat that's my sweet." Optimism. But I don't think they do that with Eric.
0: No, and it's solid, and it's and and it and it is because you. I don't know, just. The perspective that you have and where it comes from—it's not like I'm a parent, so they pat my head, because i 'Cause I'm—I have this investment. A You're different, naive. A different. Well, right? that's what they—you'd be naive. naive. But I think it's the same hope that I have for my daughter. I think it's the same hope that I have for this world. Is your baby crying? I saw you. How old is your baby?
2: Uh She's almost eleven months, hmm. and she went. She went to the conference. She uh was very well behaved.
0: We didn't get to see her.
2: Yeah, she she didn't find the talks very interesting.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: she, she came to one of my talks and cried pretty quickly and left. So I think she, she she thought like, why don't I have the microphone?
1: Right. Well, so you have a spectacular, inclusive discussion tomorrow with Down syndrome self advocates who are to be co researchers in a new project of yours. What are some of the other projects in your future?
2: Yeah, so, so I'll talk about sort of my big Down syndrome project right now is I have nine years of Medicaid and Medicare claims for all adults with Down syndrome in the U.S. So it's a population that we are anticipating to be around 55,000 to 75,000 um, adults with Down syndrome. So all of their healthcare claims and encounters. So this is anonymized data. We don't know who the people are. We can't come and call you. We don't have any of your personal information. But in comparison to other Down syndrome, studies this is like 10 to 15 times bigger than the biggest one so far and what we can do with that is really start to understand what it looks like in the whole population of down syndrome a lot of down syndrome research is overrepresented by higher income white families of means um, often close to Universities, which makes sense. You have the time to go participate in research. You can, you know, sort of take the day off work to take your child to a study. Um, but with these data, we pretty much have a large majority of adults with Down syndrome, um, including, which w- we think is really important, Black and Hispanic adults with Down syndrome. So, in the big NIH studies that they pay for now, it's six to seven percent Black participants. Where in the U.S. the population is thirteen percent. To really do the science we want to do, we probably need even more like 25 to 30% to do the work. So we think we're really going to be able to explore health and well being in a broader population of adults with Down syndrome, with the main goals being to sort of better understand patterns in Alzheimer's disease mortality and sleep apnea. So it's sort of a big data crunchy kind of project, which is really nice to be able to bring in this co researcher team to help because it's not working with individuals you know we're working with ones and zeros on computers so it's really you know it would be lonely to to do all this work without getting the opportunity to like interface with people with down syndrome so i'm, I'm really excited to be able to bring that piece into it and dr scotko is part of the project as are other people at bu so being in boston is really like the dream as a down syndrome researcher it's it's such a fun place to be with with so many good researchers and colleagues and a strong Down syndrome advocacy group here with the Massachusetts Down syndrome Congress and Lumind is here in Massachusetts as well. So that's what we're working on now. And we're really excited. It's going to take a few years because it's very intensive data work. I, I don't know much about like this stuff, but it's like 5 million people total, 10 terabytes of data, like when we want to say oh how many people with Down syndrome are there in our data it's going to take three months to get that number right now so we don't have the super computers that can like do it in an instance but we're working on it and hopefully um by next year we have some some results to share and um, what we're doing with the co-research team is is our grant our, our goals are sleep apnea dementia and also alzheimer's and mortality but anything else that they want to research they'll come up with a question and then we will crunch the numbers and bring it back to them. Um, they'll interpret it and then we'll work together to write up and disseminate what we find. So podcasts, maybe we'll learn from you. Maybe we'll come here and and they'll share, uh, posters material. Um, so, so that's sort of our plan with that group. So sort of a two pronged approach of like us brainiac nerds will work on the three things we said we would do, but then follow the lead of, of our co-researchers for all the other data.
0: I was just thinking when you're talking about the co-research is one of the things that struck me even earlier is just the participation of the community in the research, a participation in the understanding because there's so many times that I know with us we feel like it's like things happen to us.
1: Well, those points that we talked about that a doctor says to an infant almost guides them toward the place that the doctor talked about at the beginning. And it's kind of this 40 or 50 year old machine that's built with maybe some new cogs in there but you're just thrown into the machine and then spit out the end in the place that they pretty much guarantee Told you, you were go go
0: but uh, your approach where it's this it's an inclusive model and it's it's the participation and then that's going to change the outcome for individuals with Down syndrome
2: yeah and and I mean there are still immense hurdles. Like I very strongly believe that everybody should be paid for their work. And that's both students in my program and my co-researchers with Down syndrome. And the worry about losing benefits because I'm paying you is something we struggle all the time. And how often I try to hint at like, can I pay people under the table? And my administrators tell me you better not. You will get in such big trouble if you do that. So I have an intern this summer, uh 50 or one year old woman with Down syndrome working with me. And I can't pay her, because it will harm her more than it would help her. Um, so you know, we're going to get lunch every week. And like, there are these barriers that make this inclusion happen. I, I mean, I know there's a lot of advocates that are working to to remove some of those SSI income limit rules. But that's a big one, you know, inclusion will never or, or sort of opportunity will always be limited if you can't work or get your your proper compensation because you're worried about losing your health insurance. Um, so that's something my group butts our head up against all the time is, you know, using this expertise and really not being able to compensate fairly.
1: This might digress a little, but just before we continue, um, is it possible to set up many grants that you give? these individuals that they can deposit into their special needs trust that they may have. It may be a way to get around the actual income.
2: Yeah, I need to keep pushing, um, you know, because the HR, they've never experienced anyone asking this before. So, so like, you know, it's, it's so much easier to just say no than it is to come up with a solution. And, you know, I've, I've been on the job for two years, but eventually I'll wear them down and they'll they'll finally come up with a solution for me. It, it might take a few more years.
0: Well, because you are from the inside, trying to change a system that's really geared toward not towards success, but the failure of individuals with Down syndrome or disabilities. It's just not set up right now because of course it comes from our archaic belief that, you know, individuals with Down syndrome were institutionalized or all the things that they couldn't do. So you are facing these challenges. You said there's hurdles, but you have hurdles that you're going to clear and you can't clear those hurdles unless you're running the race. And that's what you're doing is you're running the race. And maybe right now you're tripping on a few but somewhere down the line you're going to be an, an olympic athlete just clearing them and clearing them for people who come behind it and when be, these changes are made change. it's
1: because of this moment
0: yeah that's what i love talking to you about is because it is the hope of change and not only just the hope because hope seems some like you know sometimes like fairy dust like i hope i hope but it's the actions behind it and and you're carving out and taking those steps and that's what I love and appreciate so much about the work that you do.
2: Yeah. And I think that really, as, as again, as a someone without a disability, as a sort of an outsider, I s- am seeing just a huge renaissance in the disability rights movement. It's it's really like front of mind. It's sort of, you know, as as the world sort of grapples with inequities, it's like kind of rising to the top. Um, and a lot of these leaders in that field are just doing such tremendous work that it's it's great to be able to sort of ride the coattails of those leaders, and you know, my little work fighting my HR administrator to get me to be able to pay these people is is important. But you know, there are advocates that are you know knocking on legislators' doors and writing legislation. And I know the National Down Syndrome Society is like this is an issue for them too. And I'm fortunate and lucky to be part of a, a movement where people are capable of of doing the political work because I for sure know that I'm not. So um it, it really is a, a good time and and I think that's kind of where my optimism is coming from. And it may not be so down syndrome specific, but I think it will greatly impact and help people with Down syndrome.
0: Well, you're an active ally, which is what we need as advocates. you're, you're yeah. we need allies because you know, as a parent, I advocate for my child. And advocate for change as as best I can. But at the end of the day, I have limits. And it's hard to have those limits. It's hard to face those limits to know that just even with my son's fight for an education and how he was denied his civil right to an education this year, nothing is going to come about that. I've tried to file different complaints and the, the system is not geared up to have accountability or consequence for when that happens. And that's a a violation of a civil right. And the good that came out of it is our son was educated because we sat by his side and supported him and then found a place that wanted him, sees him as a human, sees him as a whole human, and sees him as having a value to be educated, which none of those things were qualities of the last school he was in. So the benefit is that we persevered through the fight to get him to a place that, okay, now it's different and now he'll get the supports that he needs. But I don't have that time. And so when you have allies and people who are, like you said, going and fighting the legislation, so that way maybe other parents or maybe us down the road, when this happens, there's something in place where it doesn't happen where there's a consequence or an accountability. When my child is 21 years old, all of this work that you're doing and the people who are fighting legislation now, he'll be able to get a job and he'll be able to be paid for that job and it won't negatively impact him. Because can you say it against any other group in our society that the goal is to keep them unemployed?
1: Very backwards.
0: And it's nice that it's changing.
1: Well, when you talk about the renaissance of the disability movement, I think the smartest strategy that I think is being incorporated right now is that the disability community is riding the coattails of some real push. Diversity in race, diversity in gender and and sexual orientation and disability and all that can ride together. And I think about when we talked to Dr. Bill Mobley, he, he mentioned the reason why his research in Alzheimer's Is getting done because Alzheimer's is a weight on the general population of people it's something that is a concern for society in general and so we kind of ride the coattails of the general public wanting to find a way to stop this terrible disease and if there's any light brought upon the downstream community that they could be the bridge that's going to actually find the cure money will go to that. And that's what he has done. And he actually told me he thought that the first people in the world that will be cured of Alzheimer's will be the Down syndrome community because that's where the research is going. And hopefully then that research can vote for the general society.
0: But that's what you're talking about, about the the highest tide lifts all the boats. Mm -hmm. And I love that it's coming from inside our community that we're that will be the highest tide when it comes to that as far as Alzheimer's research. I'm so happy we got to talk to you today.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: I think this conversation is so full of hope that maybe you'll come back and we can talk about ableism another time.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would I would love to love to speak with you again. It's just it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, um, I want to hear about your new team, and I want to hear about your research and inclusion. And then if you'd like to come back and talk about ableism, because I think that in this community, it's really important.
2: Yeah, I would love to.
0: You actually have like a research point in mind. I can have like an opinion, but you can actually talk about the effects that ableism has and and how it kind of permeates through uh, the journey that we're on. Of course. I remember when um, it was the open, it was like the open mic. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing, the convention open mic. It was like a mic. question and answer. And I remember when you got up and you spoke, and I just looked at Stephen, and I was like, I love him, we need to talk to him. And then I got a chance to talk to you outside, and... I'm I'm all in to your you know the point of view that came from that little baseball playing <laughs> kid on the field that was born there and and this is what I talk about when I talk about inclusion this is the benefit to the world if we have an inclusive environment because look at the impact that it's had on you and just just I don't know just there's a certain equality in your voice and in your conversation that's just a matter of fact like this is how it should be and this is what is best that that I love because, like, I know I've said hope a lot this hour, but it's it's all about hope. It's all and hope is change. Um, and sometimes this community and the and what we're fed is not filled with hope. We're not given a light. It's the opposite. So to to be able to bring that to our community and share that with other people, I'm I just feel I feel so honored and I'm so thankful that you can come and and be with us.
1: Thank
2: you, Eric. Thank you. This is really really a lot of fun, and I'm happy that I'm. Can be passionate about what about my job and I, I know a lot of people aren't in that situation so to be able to like spend a saturday talking about this and not have to deal with the screaming baby it's really really been so much fun
1: please follow us on twitter at if we knew then pod and you can drop us a line on our facebook page at if we knew then pod or visit our website if we knew to send us an email with questions and comments